0: So there's a, a a familiar and a common TV trope or theme, if you will. You've probably encountered it over the years as you've been watching TV, whether you're watching Three's Company or Saved by the Bell or a whole bunch of other shows. In fact, if you ever watch the show Malcolm in the Middle, any Malcolm in the Middle fans in this room, a couple of us, a whole lot of us are probably going, I have no idea who that is. Um, there are these moments where Malcolm kind of like breaks away from his character and he talks straight to the camera and, and he kind of like lets you know whatever he's thinking about. And in one episode, he actually does just that, you know, he's like a middle school kid or maybe a high school kid and he looks at the camera and he sets the stage for what the plot of the show is going to be about. And he does it by kind of letting us in on the joke, by acknowledging that trope or that theme that this episode is going to be about. So he looks at the camera and he says, Oh man. I've got two dates to the spring dance. It's, it's sort of like that old episode of, well, every show like you've ever seen. And so the trope that he's referring to is when a character has to be two places at one time, two places at the same time. Many times you have a character who needs to be in a particular costume in one scene and then leave that scene and they have to be in a different costume talking to a different person in another scene. And you watch as the viewer and you cringe as you see this character just try to pull off this deceit in some way only for the inevitable to happen, right? It's impossible to keep up that lie for, for very long. It's going to come back to bite you. The closest thing that we have to being able to be in two places at the same time comes in quantum physics, actually, with something that that's scientists have observed called quantum superposition, which essentially reveals that atoms like electrons can actually be in two places at the same time. The only weird thing about that is as soon as you measure where those atoms might be, they can only be in one place at one time. And if that's confusing to you, think of it like flipping a coin. If I take a coin and I flip it in the air, while it's in the air, is that coin heads or is it tails? Well, the reality is it's kind of both. But what happens as soon as you catch that coin and put it on your hand for the first time? It is either heads or it is tails. And so it's impossible to be two things at once. And the point of all of this really is to illustrate an impossibility that we should already know is entirely true. And yet the reality is that many of us try to live our lives as though being in two places at once is entirely possible. And what we find is that when we try to live that way, at best, we exhaust ourselves, fighting a losing battle that we're not going to be able to keep up, and at worst, we can actually destroy ourselves. And so if you're joining us this morning, first I want to say welcome. Welcome to all the the new faces and familiar faces. We're so glad that you are here. We're honored, especially if you're joining us online, that you've you've taken some time this morning to worship God with us as well as for everybody who's in this room. For 2021, what we've been doing, we're, we're well into a series that we're calling Read Scripture in 2021, where we're reading through the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, a little each and every day. And so hopefully you've been able to read along with us. And if you have, you know that every Sunday's message is taken from the text that you've been reading that week. And so last week, we finished up looking at the book of 2 Samuel and the life of King David as we wrestled with kind of this duality in scripture that's presented to us about David's life. That in one sense, uh, David was this great king through which God did amazing things and amazing promises flowed. And we have to be mindful of that. And yet in another sense, David had some really serious moral failures. And so this week we're turning our attention to the book of 1 Kings. The the book of 1 Kings. And so if you have your Bible or a Bible app handy, I definitely invite you to pull that out and be able to follow along. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 17, primarily this morning, 17 and 18. And with that being said, I'd like to get started with a word of prayer. We're not quite there yet. If we could jump into a a time of prayer, Liam. Um, So as I I often do, I invite you to consider your, your physical posture and position before God. If you are sitting, maybe you want to kneel, maybe you want to stand, maybe you want to lift hands. Whatever it is, just consider what you would do before the king of all the universe. How would you approach him? Would you approach him in a chair or would you approach him some other way? Let's pray. Holy God, Father in heaven, we are so, so grateful to be able to spend this time with you thinking about your word and your ways and your life. And Lord, as we jump into this text this morning... As I often do, I pray that the words that are spoken are not words that come from Josh. But Lord, that they're words that the Holy Spirit has been working uh, in my heart and in so many of our hearts this week. Helping to reveal a new truth. Helping to convict us and challenge us and change us to be more like your Son. Father, I recognize that sometimes you show us things in your Word, and we don't want to hear what you have to say. Or sometimes we're just too blind to be able to even understand what it is that you're trying to show us. And Father, if that's the case this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears and give us eyes to see and ears to hear and courage to change according to your truth, according to your ways, Father. We are your children and you are our ultimate heavenly Father. We have dads on earth who have all hopefully been a blessing in our lives. In some cases, they haven't, Father, but you've been there. You've been steadfast. You've always listened. You've always cared. You've always loved. Father, help us to be the children that You want us to be. Help us to be people who bear Your image and live as ambassadors and representatives of You on earth. Thank You, Lord, for this this body, this, this group of brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us unite. Help us to love. Help us to be so passionate about the Gospel that we will stop at nothing to go into any Part of this world, any friendship, and just tell people that there's good news, that there's life, that there's hope. Father, help us to never be complacent with that truth, with that gospel, and always be driven, always be driven to show people love. I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, in the the wake of last week's message that was centering on the life of King David, uh, for, for those who stayed up on their reading this week, and managed to get through a lot of First Kings. You know that we covered a lot of territory this week. We covered a lot of time throughout the history of Israel. And a lot has changed from the time you start First Kings until the time you end First Kings. Because as First Kings began, we are introduced to the son of David and Uriah's wife. The son of, of David and Bathsheba. And his name is Solomon. And he becomes the next king over the kingdom or the nation of Israel. And from day one, Solomon is portrayed as a a great king, a faithful king. He's a king who asks God not for wealth, who asks God not for material possessions, but asks God for wisdom. And God is so impressed and so pleased by the, the heart of Solomon to ask God for wisdom that he not only gives him a bunch of wisdom, but he also gives him a bunch of wealth as well. In fact, few people throughout the history of the entire world have had the kind of wealth that King Solomon is alleged to have had. One resource I saw this week said that in today's dollars, Solomon would have had a wealth roughly equivalent to $2 trillion, which is about 10 times what the world's richest man today, Jeff Bezos, is alleged to be worth. Like Solomon is so revered and he's so blessed by God that even he is the one who's granted permission to do the very thing that God told David he would not be able to do And that is to build the temple for God in Jerusalem. A temple with unparalleled grandeur. A temple with with gold and and the finest and most precious metals and stones. A a temple meant to to reflect the grandeur of heaven and the throne of God on it. And so Solomon is, is this important figure for us. He's also traditionally credited as being the author of three important books in our Bibles, if you've ever read the book of Proverbs, or the book Song of Solomon, sometimes called Song of Songs, or my personal favorite, if you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, then you are reading books attributed to Solomon. And so for the first eight or ten chapters of, of First Kings, everything is going great for King Solomon. Everything is going swimmingly. And thus far, he seems to be on a better or greater moral trajectory than even his father David was on. And then chapter 11 happens. And chapter 11 begins with these fateful words. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your heart after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. And as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. And so as a result of of Solomon's wandering heart, God told him, Solomon, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of your hands, yet for the sake of, of the promise that I made through David, it won't happen during your lifetime. And so as Solomon's son Rehoboam assumed the throne in the wake of Solomon's death, an incredibly important event is getting ready to happen in the nation of Israel. And it it takes place because Rehoboam chooses to deal with the people of Israel harshly. He chooses not to be gentle. He chooses to be harsh. And so much like what God had done with King Saul and with David, uh, God is preparing to raise up another king. This king is named Jeroboam, not to be confused with Rehoboam, who is king. And Jeroboam has promised to become king, only he's not going to be king over all 12 tribes of Israel. God is only going to give him 10 tribes of Israel. And so one generation, just one generation after Solomon was king and everything was great and he was wealthy and Israel was powerful, there's this fall. And the prosperity that Israel had, had enjoyed was, was getting ready to come to an end where this one powerful kingdom was now getting ready to become two kingdoms. In the north would be the kingdom of Israel, consisting of ten tribes, which would be called the northern kingdom. And in the south would be the kingdom of Judah, consisting of two tribes, which would also be known as the southern kingdom. And for the next four or five chapters, as you're reading through 1 Kings, almost everything that we read about is a steady stream, a steady parade of kings from the north and from the south, And if there's one consistent theme throughout all of those kings, it's that nearly every single one of them falls into exactly the same trap that Solomon fell into. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord, serving and worshiping the Baals, the Asherahs, and these other false gods and idols. Nearly every king falls victim to the same trap. And so by the time we reach the reign of King Ahab in the north, Several generations of kings later, God has had enough. He's had enough, and as a reader, if you're reading along, there's this huge shift in tone as we reach First Kings chapter 17. Because as we've been reading all about all these different kings, all of a sudden, unexpectedly, we are thrust into the life of a prophet by the name of Elijah. And First Kings 17 is here for a reason. I think it's here to set the stage, to to help us as the reader understand the world that we are now living in. This is not Solomon's world where there's there's wealth and prosperity. No, the the life in the world that Elijah and King Ahab are now living in is a land of severe drought. It's a land of severe famine. And we're told three stories about Elijah here right off the bat in, in chapter 17 to paint a picture about the destitution that is in the land and the power that Yahweh, the one true God, has to change their situation. First, we read about Elijah who is literally camping beside a brook and God is feeding him by ravens. It says something about God. Second, God sends Elijah to the poorest of the poor. He says, I want you to go to this helpless widow and I want her to feed you. And when he approaches her, she's admittedly and understandably pretty freaked out about what she's saying because she's thinking, man, if I feed you, I'm not going to have enough food to feed myself. I'm not going to have enough food to feed my kids or my family. I'm not sure I can do that. And so Elijah goes, well, here's a promise. If you do this, I promise you, you will have enough. And so she does. And what they find out is that the the flour and the oil that she uses to make the bread miraculously does not get used up. Later, as her son becomes sick and is on the verge of death, we're told Elijah stretches out and lays on him and prays and God hears his prayer and brings this, this child back either from death or the verge of death. And all three of these stories demonstrate something power to, powerful to us. That God feeds, God gives enough, and God heals. God feeds, God gives enough, God heals. This is the one true God. Each of these events demonstrates the power of that one true God. The power of Yahweh and the powerlessness of Baal who had become the God of the land of Israel that was kind of by default everyone's first priority. So the first thing you need to understand about this famine, this drought, this destitution that they're they're living in is that it's a direct affront to who this, this false God is alleged to be. Who Baal or Baal is alleged to be. Now there are lots of Baals, lots of Baals mentioned throughout Scripture. But there's one commonality between them all. That Baal is always supposed to be a God of rain, a God of thunder, a God of lightning. He is the one who's supposed to have the power to change their circumstances, the power to bring prosperity. And yet, here they are. They're literally starving to death. There is no food in the land because there has been no rain. In fact, in chapter 18, even King Ahab, is out there trying to find some green grass anywhere so he can feed his, his, his animals, who so can feed his horses and his mules. There isn't even enough in the land for the king to feed his animals. And so as Elijah is called by God to approach the king, Ahab greets him coldly. He says, is that you? Is that you, you troubler of Israel? And yet Elijah has this unenviable position to rebuke the most powerful man in the land. For anyone who ever thought, yeah, being a prophet seems like a really cool job, let me just squash that right off the bat. Being a prophet was a ter- terrifying job because being a prophet meant speaking some, some truths, some hard truths to some people who really didn't want to hear it. And that's Elijah's job here. He's getting ready to rebuke the, the most powerful man in the land. He says, I have not made trouble for Israel. Don't misunderstand this. You and your father's family have made trouble for Israel. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and you have chosen to follow the Baals. And so Elijah tells the king exactly what to do. He says, king, I want you to go and I want you to gather everybody. Gather all the people in the land. Gather all your prophets for all your false gods. And I want you to come meet me at Mount Carmel. And so they do. And you can kind of picture the scene that as the masses gather, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people around. They're wondering what this commotion is. What what is it that you've called us here for? What are you getting ready to show us? And Elijah gets a chance to just speak to all of them. And he addresses this massive crowd, and he has one vital question. He says, how long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you waver between two opinions? Other translations more accurately say, how long will you go limping? between two opinions. Because the reality of King Ahab and the people of Israel was not a wholesale abandonment of Yahweh, the one true God. But what began under King Solomon and continued without ceasing under King Rehoboam and King Jeroboam and all the other kings after them, King Ahab and so on, where they followed the king of Israel and something else what they tried to have was God, Yahweh, and. Does that make sense? They thought to themselves, we can worship the God of our forefathers, the God of our ancestors, and we can worship all these new gods that we've learned about from from these new people in the land that we live with. And so Elijah stands in front of them on the mountain and he asks, how long? How long are you guys going to go limping between these two opinions? It kind of reminds me of this scene from one of the favorite movies that I had as a kid growing up. In fact, I suggested that Ollie watched this movie this week. He might've been able to relate to it. Anyone ever seen Rookie of the Year? Came out in the 90s, baseball movie. It's about this uh, like 13-year-old kid who gets injured playing baseball. And as he heals, all of a sudden, he can throw like 103 miles an hour. And the, the Chicago Cubs, his favorite team, take notice and they sign him. And so he walks in at 13 years old to this terrible Cubs team, and he's wide eyed. And he walks up to the pitching coach, played by Daniel Stern, who is an absolute joke of a pitching coach. And the character says, You see, after the game, a lot of guys like to ice up their arm. He says, Still, other fellas think that heat is the way to go. But I have discovered the secret, Henry hot ice. You heat up the ice cubes. It's the best of both worlds. And so what Elijah is confronting in the people of Israel is kind of a hot ice mentality toward God, one that has been brewing, one that has been taking hold of their hearts for generations. And no amount of drought or famine seems to be waking them up to the fact that Baal is powerless to help them. They're not getting it. Yet they just keep heating up those ice cubes. And so Elijah continues. He says, If the Lord is God follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And we're told that the people heard what he had to say and they said nothing. Nothing. And so as this scene continues to develop, Elijah looks to the prophets of Baal. He says, alright, you guys go and prepare a bull for a sacrifice. And I'm I'm the last prophet of of Yahweh left. I'm going to prepare a bull for sacrifice. He says, then, you call on the name of your God and I'll call in the name of the Lord of Yahweh and the God who answers by fire, well, he is God. And the people hear this and they're like, yeah, that seems like a great idea. Okay, let, yeah, let's do that. And as the time came, the text says that then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. They said, Baal, answer us. But there was no response. No one answered. So they danced around the altar that they'd made. And at noon Elijah began to taunt them. He said, Hey, shout louder. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's just, you know, deep in thought. You got to get his attention. Or maybe he's busy or he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and you gotta wake him up. I think some people even say, like, there's a, a comment in there, like, maybe he's going to the bathroom. You just wait for him to come back. So they shouted louder. They slashed themselves with swords and spears. This is the kind of god they're worshiping, a god who slashes. Who encourages them to slash themselves until their blood flowed. And midday passed, and they continued their, their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. And so now it was Elijah's turn. And so he built an altar, he took 12 stones representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he placed the wood, and he placed the bull, and he began to show off. He said, you see those four huge jars over there? Fill those with water. Dump those all over the altar. Wet things don't burn very well, right? He says, okay, you've done that once? Do it again. You've done it once? Do it again. And then Elijah stepped forward, and he prayed. And he said, Lord, the God of Abraham... Isaac, and notice he doesn't say Jacob, he uses the other name of Israel. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. So answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice the wood, even the stones and the soil, and licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried, the Lord, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. It was that moment where God kind of, I can't do it with this without breaking it, but God dropped the mic. It was this moment, right? Right? And so Elijah climbed back to the top of the mountain. He put his head between his knees and he prayed. And seven times he took a servant. He said, go, hey, go look for a cloud. And six times that servant came back and said, there's no cloud. But on the seventh time he said, there's this tiny little cloud. And Elijah said, okay, I want you to go tell King Ahab, gather up your things, hitch up your chariot and get down off the mountain before the rain stops you. God had made his point. God had made his point. It was Yahweh, the one true God who had the power over the ravens. It was Yahweh who had the power over the sick. It was Yahweh who had the power to bring rain and prosperity on the land, not Baal, not Asherah, not any other false god or idol. It was Yahweh. And so church, we listen to this story. You've probably heard this story dozens of times before in your life. And if we aren't careful, we can often find ourselves kind of arrogantly pumping our fists and saying, man, what idiots those people must have been to think there was some other God, to put their hope in some other God, all at the same time without realizing, as King Solomon once said, there is nothing new under the sun. And So the issue that Elijah was dealing with was the inherent behavior of the king and of the people, that they could be in two places at one time. They thought we can worship Yahweh and we can worship these other gods. We can worship Baal. And so it was like that scene in Malcolm in the Middle that I talked about at the very beginning of the message today, the belief that we could date one girl and we could date another girl as if there was any hope of that actually working out without becoming a total mess. Can that actually work out, church? go like this. No, that's, that's going to be a mess. Now, we may not be out there literally worshiping some other deity, some other God, but does that mean that we aren't trying to be or live in two places at one time? And the answer to that question is, of course not. Absolutely not. You know, early in ministry, I did a lot with college students. I've talked about this before. And I just so happened to be in a, in a college party town up in Chico. And so every Sunday morning, every Sunday morning. a.m., I'd have this college class. And a bunch of these kids would would stumble in and and try to be there because they loved the class and they loved God and it was awesome. But they were like operating on four hours of sleep because they'd been out at the bars till 4 a.m., sometimes drunk, sometimes hungover. And they're coming in, they're trying to manage those two lifestyles at the same time. And this is a weekly occurrence. And the reality is some version of this preys on every single one of us. It may not be that we're out of the bars to 4 a.m., but some version of this preys on every single one of us. How did Elijah describe their behavior to the people when he stood there at Mount Carmel and talked to them? He said, you guys are limping. You're limping between two different opinions, two different lifestyles, two different lives. It's language of the wounded, language of the lame, language of the disabled. And that's exactly what it's like. When we as Christians try to live that way, we are choosing to live like wounded and disabled people because we are limping between two opinions, between two lifestyles, between two lives. And many of us don't even realize it because it's so common, it's so normal, it's all we know. What we don't realize, church, is that there is a real war happening. It's an unseen war. It's a spiritual war, and it's a tug of war in which you, me, all of us, we are the rope. And so both forces on that rope are stronger than we could ever dream to be. And both forces are pulling in exactly opposite directions. There's one force on that rope that is pulling us toward God, toward truth, toward life. And there's this other force that is pulling us in exactly the opposite direction. And it's enticing. Because that force represents comfort. That force represents pleasure. That force represents prosperity. That force represents uh, uh, power and prestige and all the things that we naturally want for ourselves in this life. And so try as we might to hold on to both. Kind of picture yourself in the middle holding on to two different lifestyles. Try as we might to hold on to both, to harness both one of three things has to happen. Either we let go of the world and we give ourselves to God, or we let go of God and we give ourselves to the world, or we let the tension between the two literally rip us in two, literally destroy us. And the reality is most of us try to live with option three as long as we possibly can until we're just about to break. There was a former minister of mine when I was you know, much younger who used to call this just enough faith to be miserable. Just enough faith to be miserable because that's exactly what it is. You're in agony trying to hold on to both ways of life, but you'll endure the pain and you won't let go because you're in love with both because you serve both. And so Monday through Saturday, you're content to live as one person so long as Sunday morning you can show up and you can live as a different person, another person. But here's the thing, that's exactly where all of us are most vulnerable. That is exactly the most dangerous place for us to be is exhausted and exasperated, running between these two different kinds of lives. You know, God says in Revelation, you know this well, He'd rather us be hot or even cold, but God never wants us to be what? What? Say that aloud again. He never wants us to be lukewarm. Lukewarm is gross. Lukewarm is enough to make God spit us out of his mouth, he says. Who likes iced coffee? Who likes hot coffee? Who likes lukewarm coffee? Not a hand. is. Oh, there's one hand up here. You broke my, my, my comment. The most vulnerable and dangerous place we can be is to try to live in two places at once. To try to live in two different camps at once because it's there that the enemy will find us. And so if there's one thing I want you to get from today's message, it's this. You see it behind me. The enemy hunts when we live two places at once. I want you to think about that. Think about an enemy on the prowl. Think about something hunting you and where you're most vulnerable. When you're running between two different camps over and over and over again, That is when you're most vulnerable. Not when you're in one camp. Not when you're in the other camp. It's the vulnerable place in between. That is when the enemy hunts. That is when he prowls. That is when he attacks. And so the question is, what do we do with that? How do we respond to that? And so if you have a notebook or your note app on your phone handy, I absolutely encourage you to get it out. You might even just take a picture of the slides that are up here. But I definitely encourage you to get that out really quick. Because I want to give you what are some, hopefully, some practical steps that you can use to help you try to avoid living as a King Ahab, living as a Solomon, living as a Rehoboam or a Jeroboam. Here are some steps that we can take to deal with the bales of our lives. And the first step is this. Think about the God ends of your life. Here's what I mean. Unless you're a monk, and I don't think anyone here is a monk, it's inevitable that you will be a follower of God, a follower of Christ, and you'll be something else. You'll be somebody else. Your life may be God and school, God and mom, God and dad, God and uh, addictions or career or marriage or whatever it might be. And I want you to write down everything that you can think of that, that would go into that blank. And there's no wrong answer here, but my my encouragement to you would be to be as specific as you possibly can. I'm not asking you to share this with anybody, but whatever it might be, what are those things in your life that identify you as both a follower of God and something else? Be specific. And so if you're like an admin on a Facebook group, maybe put that. If you're an officer on a board of something, maybe put that. If you are addicted to your smartphone or food or alcohol or pornography, Put those things. Or maybe you're just consumed with thoughts that intersect the political landscape. You're very Republican or you're very Democrat. Like, put those things. I want you to list all of the God ands in your life. Second, I want you to draw two big circles. One circle is labeled, and, and this, this is like a Venn diagram, but notice the circles don't merge. They don't overlap. And one circle right of God And in the other circle, right, not of God. And I want you to think of these as like, what brings me closer to the true God and what might move me further away from the true God in my life? Another way of thinking about this is like, at the end of my life, which of these things will I be glad that I invested in? Like, will you think to yourself, man, I, I really blew it teaching my kids about Jesus, but I'm so glad that I made a scene in that store that one time about not wearing a mask back in 2020. Or I'm so glad that I I, I got to level 100,000 in Candy Crush. Or I'm so glad that I worked 100 hour work weeks. Is that how you're gonna reflect on your life at the end of it all? And so think of your time as currency. Think of your time as something that you invest because that's what it is. We have this finite currency in our life and we have to make the most of it. But many of us, and this is, I'm a hypocrite, I'm the first to admit it. I'm a hypocrite. Many of us use our time poorly. We're not investing what we have very well. Third, place all of those God ends into one of those two circles. Make yourself put each and every one. And I recognize that there are going to be some things on your list that you don't want to put in one of those two circles. Maybe it feels like it belongs in a middle ground somewhere, a neutral category. But I want you to think of it this way. Everything in your life is either moving you closer to God or further from God. There's, there's not really a middle ground there. It's either moving you closer or it's moving you further away. There is no being stationary. And so forth. I want you to focus on that of God category. And I want you to re-examine everything that you put into that category. Ask yourself, what needs to change so that God can actually become Lord of that part of my life? Because I'm going to make an assumption You may think, well, I already put it in the of God category. It's a good thing. This is good for me. But I'm going to make an assumption that sometimes if you really, really look at what's going on behind the scenes, it may not be. And here's what I mean. If you're in college, you may have school in that category. And you go, hey, school is a great thing. And I agree, school is great. But if school is not ultimately about serving God, but maybe it's your own dreams, your own goals, your own income, whatever it might be, it can become a negative. Does that make sense? Think about career. Career can be great. But if your career is also about serving your own ego or your materialism, your, your drive to have more and more stuff, it can become a negative. Parenting can even be a great thing, is a great thing. But if parenting somehow is about like living vicariously through your kids or having them do the things that you never got a chance to do when you were a kid or trying to make sure that they succeed in this life in a way that you never could, maybe then parenting can even become a negative that pulls you further away from God. And so if something seems good in your life, but it's actually pulling you further away from Christ, maybe, maybe it's in the wrong circle. And finally, just take a look at what you see and pray over what you see. Because there's no clear path there's no clear recipe for what to do next that's going to fit everyone. But in the same way, and again, hypocrite, I'm guilty, in the same way that it's good to actually get on that scale and see what it actually says, and in the same way that it's good to go to the doctor and see where your your health actually is, it's also really good to take a spiritual inventory and see what's really going on in your spiritual life. Because the reality, church, is we all, we all have bales. We all have some false gods and some false idols in our lives. And we all have these God and things, right? That, are, that we're trying to hold on to. That in reality, they should just be God things. And so you look back at over 1 Kings, you have king after king after king who were given the same task by God. Tear down the altars, tear down the Asherah poles, stop worshiping Baal and remember Yahweh. Remember, the one true God who loves you. And what did king after king after king actually do? They said, no, it's okay. No, it's all right. God and. God and. God and. And so you may even be listening to me now now thinking, yeah, right. I'm I'm never going to do this activity that you just talked about. I have no intention of going home and doing this. I have no intention of, of really trying to look at that part of my life I want you to ask yourself, if that's the case, why? Why would you not go do this? Why would you not spend some time thinking about that? Is it indicative of a similar heart that Solomon had? A similar heart to Jeroboam? A similar heart to Rehoboam? A similar heart to King Ahab? Is it a hard heart? Is it an obstinate heart? Is it a heart that will destroy you because the enemy hunts when we live two places at once? Church, we all have those idols. We all have them. They're idols that we have to fight to destroy in our lives. And maybe they're career-focused. Maybe they're political. Maybe it's materialism and stuff or something else. When we look back at King David's life from last week, what set David apart from all the other kings that followed that we've talked about today is that when he was confronted, what did he do? He let his heart and his stubbornness and his ego break. He let him utterly break so that God could rescue him. The other kings stayed in the tug of war and let it literally destroy them and tear them in two. That's what happened in God's kingdom. Do you realize that? His kingdom was literally torn in two because of stubbornness over these things. Church, the enemy is strong. Do you believe that? The enemy is strong. Far stronger than any of us. And yet at the same time, nowhere near as strong as as Jesus on the cross. Can I get an amen? He is nowhere near as strong as Jesus on the cross. And so if you're listening to today's message and you realize, like, I am utterly exhausted from trying to live a life in the tension between these two opinions, these two lifestyles, these two lives, then I want to invite you. I want to invite you with the same invitation that Elijah invited the people with. If God is God of your life, will you commit to following him? If Jesus is the Christ, will you commit to surrendering your life to him? And if you are ready for the Holy Spirit of God to come in and make a change in your life, then that's exactly what I want to invite you to this morning. I want to invite you to receive the Holy Spirit, to make Jesus both Lord and King of your life. If you're watching online, I want to thank you again for for tuning in with us. And I want to invite you, if you are ready to make Jesus Lord of your life, you can email us at questions at lakemercedchurch.com. And if you're here with us in person this morning, we're going to stand here in just a moment. We're going to sing a song. And during that song, you can come talk to me, or after that song, just out in the courtyard as we're, we're fellowshipping and saying goodbye. Come and talk to me. I would love to hear what's on your heart. But I invite you where you are. Let's stand. Let's get ready to sing. And I want to speak this blessing over you that I've been speaking for for weeks now. May the Lord bless you. Go ahead and stand. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. Let's praise Him, church.